Greek philosophy got started with the speculations of Thales in the first quarter of the 6th century. He looked at the world and asked, what is reality? What has real being? This question and the various answers led to biology, mathematics, physics, astronomy, and a host of other sciences that we know. But this was the speculation of philosophers. The intellectual revolution, which flourished as a result of the democratic reforms of Athens, gave rise to a number of rather subversive views on morality and religion. Generally, the people who pushed these ideas were known as sophists. The ethical position they usually took up was relativistic. Nothing is good or bad in itself. Against this background of thinking comes Socrates, the most important yet enigmatic of all Greek philosophers. He's the most important because his questions, such as, what is the good life? What are we really as people? Or what is the nature of the soul? Inspired the greatest thinkers of the world for centuries. In this aspect, he marks a watershed in Greek thinking, so much so that we refer to all those who came before him as pre-Socratic. He's enigmatic because he himself wrote nothing down. He spent his time talking to people, urging them to do philosophy, urging them to find their true self. What we know of this man must be put together from various sources, each of which has its own slant on what he was doing. Socrates' approach to philosophy in part gave rise to this confusion. He wanted each person to do their own philosophy, to think for themselves. He did not claim to have any truth to impart, no doctrine for believers. But those who sat at his feet often came away with ideas which crystallized into doctrines. Platonism, with ethical interests. Cynicism, they live according to nature. The Cyreniacs, go for the intelligent pursuit of pleasure. The Megarians, let's focus on logic and dialectic, argument form. The skeptics, we know nothing. Socrates was born in 469 in the deme of Alopec near Athens, the son of a sculptor and, and a midwife. Being born from a midwife, as we'll see, had a lasting impression. If he followed the usual custom of following his father's training, he too would have been trained as a sculptor, but he did not pursue this trade as a career. As a young man in the 440s, he was taken with the work of Athens' first native-born scientist, Archelaus. He found these speculations ultimately empty. Then he turned to Anaxagoras' theory that mind controls all things. He bought all the books of Anaxagoras that he could find, hoping to discover the truth about humans and why we should be as we are, why the world is as it is. He looked for the explanations which gave mind as a cause, but found none. He dabbled in virtually every kind of intellectual speculation that was current at the time. But by the 430s, he was primarily interested in the questions about human nature and morality. These were questions seldom touched on by the scientific pre-Socratic philosophers. The inscription above the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, Know Thyself, became his motto. There's a story, probably true, that about this time, say 428, Socrates' friend, Chirophon, 
went to Delphi and asked Apollo who was the wisest person. The, the answer came back, Socrates. Socrates could not believe this answer. He was shocked by how little he knew. He just spent more than a decade studying the greatest thinkers in the history of Greek civilization. He had just gone through all kinds of philosophies, sophistries, but he had not found anything he could hold on to as knowledge. He asked questions such as, what is justice? What is virtue? What is courage? What is beauty? What is the good life? He sought out those people who professed to teach on these topics in the hope of finding someone who did know the answers to these questions the questions of life. He thought that if he found someone with this knowledge, that he could then go back to Delphi and say, what did you mean? These people are wiser than me. So he questioned anyone who professed knowledge, only to find out that none of them knew what they were talking about. So Socrates concluded that the majority of people were walking about convinced of their opinions without being able to give any reason for their convictions. People think they know things, but in truth, they're ignorant. They think they know that a trial verdict is just or unjust, but they have no idea of what justice is. One person is brave or cowardly, or one a work of art is more beautiful than another. But in all these cases, these people, while professing to be experts on that particular topic, will be unable to explain what is just or courageous or beautiful, whatever. So perhaps the oracle meant that at least Socrates knew that he knew nothing and that it is better to be aware of one's ignorance and to seek further than to rest complacently with one's ignorance. For the rest of his life, Socrates sought out anyone who claimed to have knowledge of these ideals, justice, virtue, piety, you name it. And by his method of question and answer, which we call the dialectic, which show them to be ignorant of whatever it was they claimed to know. We'll see this in Euthyphro. A politician would make a law and declare it to be just. And Socrates would say, well, you must know what justice is then, if you can say that law is itself just. The politician and a public forum, such as the Agora, the wrestling school, would end up with mud on his face, unable to explain anything, having been caught in a web of Socratic logic. Socrates made enemies, very powerful enemies. Socratic ignorance was only partially real. He did come up with positive observations. For example, he says, the unexamined life is not worth living. Virtue is knowledge. No one does wrong knowingly. It is better to suffer an injustice than to do an injustice. Observations which are intimately bound up with his belief in the nature of the soul, our immortal essence. But much of what he thought about was ethical, or concerns morality. Of course, morality and related topics were the concern of the sophists. But Socrates was not happy with the kind of answers they gave or the implications their answers had for ethics. They were relativists. Nothing is either good or bad in itself. But thinking makes it so. To quote the the dramatist Euripides. Socrates believed this position to be wrong, but convincing others was not an easy task. What Socrates did 
was to make a distinction in the way we make value judgments. He claims we need to distinguish between intrinsic and instrumental values. What makes us excellent, good and happy as people, is intrinsic to us and should be valued most highly. What is merely instrumental in attaining this end has been misused and misprized by people in society as the good in itself. Money, fame, beauty, he says, are desired and thought of as resulting in happiness for those who possess them. But he points out that they don't make the possessor happy or good. Wisdom, justice, courage, and such virtues do make the possessor good and happy. These are intrinsic values we should cultivate. They are good in themselves, by themselves alone, and not as a means to some other end. Being wise is good in itself. It may not lead to money or fame, but doesn't need to lead to anything else. This view of Socrates really stood the Athenian system of values on its head. A typical Athenian would have said, it's good to be just because that will lead to a good reputation. Or perhaps if you were not just, it could lead to punishment. So for the average person, virtues lead to money, friends, prestige, political power, and so on. What the typical Athenian saw as the good life. And I'll just note that we're not so different from the typical Athenian. The Socratic revolution was to suggest that the virtues are conditions of the soul. They are aspects of your true self, who we really are as humans. The idea that you could be harmed by loss of property or physical comforts misses the point. The only harm that can come to a person is to become worse as a person, and a person is only the soul. One can only damage one's soul by acting against the virtues which make our soul, by doing unjust acts, by being wicked. Here, we harm our own souls. And this is why it is better to suffer injustice than to do it. No one can damage your soul by beating you or punishing you or by doing anything physical to you. You alone can harm your soul by doing wrong. You alone can purify your soul by doing good. Care for the soul became another of his mottos. There is nothing more important for you than your soul, your true self. Of his personal life, we know he fought in two military battles, uh, Potidea, 432-29, and uh, Delium, 424. In Potidea, he saved the life of Alcibiades, and at Delium, he saved the life of a fellow countryman during a retreat. Both examples of courage and selfless giving for others. While he had no attraction to public office, no political aspirations, he believed that because he was a citizen, such offices were his responsibility to hold and perform well, if he should ever be called to hold them. Certainly, in 406, he held the spot of President of the Assembly, and in this capacity, he argued in vain, against a popular clamor for an illegal trial. They wanted to execute a number of generals as a group. And he points out everyone's entitled to an individual trial. Now, of course, the Athenians 
just did that, and they killed all their excellent generals in one fell swoop. As an example of his moral fortitude, at risk to his own security, and in another context, comes from the very dark period of Athenian history between 404 and 403, a reign of about eight months. Sparta supported the rule of 30 tyrants. These tyrants revoked all the democratic laws of the 461 period and renewed the power of the Areopagus court. This is a court run by the oligarchs. That is, it allowed the the wealthy families to assume many judicial functions and political powers. I should also mention that at this time, the leading men were Theramenes, who led the call for the illegal trial of 406, and Critias, who happens to be Plato's uncle. This Critias wrestled power from Theramenes by establishing a guard of 3,000 loyal supporters. These supporters alone would qualify as citizens, and their names were listed in a catalogue, a catalogue which, however, omitted the friends of Theramenes. Then Critias passed a law which gave any member of the Thirty the power to put to death and confiscate the property of any person whose name was not on that list. If a name was on the list, that person could at least get a trial. In just a few months, 1,500 men were killed and their properties confiscated by this measure. And in that circumstance, Socrates refused, at the risk of his own life, to arrest someone that he was ordered to do, a man sentenced to death by these tyrants. Do no wrong. Theramenes was ultimately killed by Critias. At any rate, between 403 and 402, democracy returns. The Periclean reforms were restored. But people were very hostile to anyone who did not support democracy. Some people thought Socrates was not really democratic, because one common line of thought he offered was that the opinions of the masses, the hoi poloi, as we would say in Greek, were worthless. If you're sick, what do you do? Take a poll, general opinions, and follow that advice? To see, or do you seek out a specialist, a doctor, and take their advice? If you want to be a sculptor, I suspect you'll learn from a master sculptor. In every field in life, there are people who specialize and who have greater insight into their specific task or topic of study. The few who know are to be valued over the opinions of the common person in all of these matters. So what happens in matters of political importance in a democracy? Well, every idiot gets an equal say and an equal vote. Every person has strong opinions about what should or should not be done, what is just or unjust, but very, very few, if any at all, have ever given any thought to the details of the problem at hand. Very, very few have really thought about what is just or unjust. Democratically minded people might just have a problem with Socrates. And finally, in 399, he was charged with a variety of offenses, irreligion, invoking new gods, corrupting the young by this fellow Melitus, and he was ultimately sentenced to death. 
The description of this trial is preserved in two versions, and they're both called the Apology, a Plato's Apology and Xenophon's Apology. His death was delayed by a month. The main events are covered in Plato's uh, Crito, in which uh, some friends offer to bribe the guards and let Socrates escape. He refuses to escape. Uh, and the Phaedo, which is a discussion of uh, the soul and immortality. So, in Greece, execution was normally done immediately or on the next day. But a ship had just set sail for Crete to perform a religious duty, and no executions could be held until it returned. His death by hemlock, just by the way, was one of the best ways to go. Political traitors could be thrown down a rocky cliff. Many people were placed on crosses. There was staurao. It was uh, more agonizing than the ones the Romans used. Lastly, one detail of his life that is important to bear in mind is that Socrates never wrote anything down. Everything we know about him and his life is derived from people who knew him and wrote about him because they knew he was a very special person.